Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. Paul Carenza is a stand-up comedian and comedy writer whose new book, Hark! The Biography of Christmas, is published by Lion. The book examines the journey that Christmas has made from its roots in a pagan festival, many years before Jesus' birth, to the celebrations we enjoy today. From Mary to Mariah Carey, candles to handle, band festivities to band-aid. I spoke to Paul about his book, and also about the relationship between Christianity and comedy, and whether preachers should tell jokes in their sermons. As Christmas approaches, why not buy a gift subscription to the Church Times for a family member or friend? They will receive the paper in the post every week next year, full access to our website and archive, the app for iPhone and iPad, and a choice of one of three books. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash Christmas to find out more. So Paul, could you tell us about your new book, Hark! The Biography of Christmas? Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's a book. Uh, well, you've said that in the introduction, really, haven't you? Uh, but it's, it's a history book, really. It's meant to be a bit... I suppose Bill Bryson was sort of my, uh, my, my book, um, you know, mentor. I would say mentor. That implies he spoke to me. No, I just read a few of his books, yeah. and I like that. So, yeah, my background is more comedy, but I, I've always been fascinated with history, and particularly with story. I do a lot uh, nowadays of story workshops with uh, for, for the BBC Writers' Room. Um, as a sitcom writer, I suppose... I'm sort of called in for things like I did the London Screenwriters Festival this year talking about narrative comedy and how to structure story and things. And I found looking at the history of Christmas, I thought, yeah, there's a whole bunch of story stuff here. The way it's not, you know, it's, it could have been a book about trivia. And there are loads of Christmas books about the Christmas trivia moments. But I just thought they all link together. The way that Dickens actually follows on through the American Washington Irving, who set up this cosy Christmas when he saw it over here. which But all that relates to Cromwell banning Christmas. And he banned it because of... Reformation, and before you know it, you're unpicking it, and mm. it's like putting the thread on a Christmas jumper. So, I thought, yeah, let's um, let's unpick that thread, really. And uh, 360 pages later, here we are. And who's it aimed at? It's described by Miranda Hart as a perfect stocking filler. Well, it's very nice of her. Um, it, I suppose it depends. Yeah, it depends who owns the stocking, doesn't it? Really, you know. I mean, my kids are four and seven, and if they found it in their stocking, they're like, not Dad. We've got 500 copies upstairs. <laughs> But that said, they might get one. Um, yeah, I, I suppose it is aimed at people who would like a, a bit of a, more of an insight into bits of Christmas history. I think there's often, I, and I find myself caught between that push-pull of the spiritual Christmas, the commercial Christmas. Mm. We're all sort of still finding our place in that, I think, particularly as Christians as well. We end up thinking, you know, it's easy to go think, yes, well, I'm not going to do the commercial shopping thing. Christmas for me is all about Jesus and church, but you cannot help but get embroiled in the world's Christmas party. Uh, and Tesco selling mince pies in August, whatever it might be. So I suppose it's for anyone who just might be a bit interested in how we've got to where we've got to. Yeah, you always write for yourself, really. You can't really go aiming at a particular market, I think. So I like books where you're not hit by this wall of text when you open any random points. I've always tried to make sure whenever you open it, there's a little headline, a subheading, a list, a picture, something a little bit amusing, something a bit different. So yes, you're getting the story behind Christmas. I've done it over twelve the 12 dates of Christmas that I think Christmas became a little bit more like the modern Christmas. But yeah, I've tried to aim it at someone like me who just likes a little bit of a dip in, dip out as well as mm. anything. How did you go about researching 
Uh, by getting lots of strange looks in Guildford Library in uh, April, May and June, reading all the Christmas books <laughs> over the last two years. So, yeah, I, I've been on it for a couple of years now. And, uh, yeah, just, I mean, there are books about the history of Christmas, but I found a lot of them either to be very academic and quite dry mm. or very trivial. I've really tried to get something in the middle. I know the, the cover looks like a, it's a sort of a wacky joke book and with a Miranda Hart quote, which is very nice of her, and Chris Evans doing the forward. Lovely, very nice indeed. Um, but they're all obviously quite light entertainment. But yeah, I suppose I've, I've got into it fairly in depth, I suppose, really. And that just comes from somewhere between those two different types of history book that I've, I think I've read all of them now. So yeah. Did anything surprise you when while researching the book? About uh, yeah, oh, so many things, so many things. I mean, you've got the, the, the little trivia thing. Having said about the trivia thing, I was trying to go away from that. The little things, obviously, are the things that stand out. I didn't know that King Herod had a wife called Doris. Um, really? You know, amongst other wives, he had a wife called Cleopatra as well. But somewhere between Cleopatra and Doris, uh, probably fooled the rest. Um, you know, and things that I sort of vaguely was aware about, but hadn't really looked into. So things like there being no donkey in the Christmas nativity in the Gospels. <laughs> donkey at the end of Jesus' life, of course, but it makes mm. sense to have that donkey there at the start, which is why we have it in our, our plays uh, today. Uh, and then the other stuff over the years, I didn't realise, like St Francis of Assisi, his, how, how big a role he had in the history of Christmas, being one of the first to write uh, Christmas carols in local languages, not in Latin, putting on the first live uh, Christmas nativity crib with animals and a stone, uh, Mary and Jesus. And, and But those are two sort of slightly, um, you know, potentially trivial uh, sort of incarnations of what he did but actually it was all about that whole change of philosophy of Christmas for the people as opposed to from on high and from uh, from various sort of powers that be dispensing how they think we should celebrate Christmas. St. Francis he said no this is it's been a thousand years now it was about a thousand years after Jesus come on everybody it's it, you don't realize this is about poverty and about a farming family really in a farming community born in a barn all that sort of stuff but people didn't realize this because they were just reading it in latin and that sort of thing and they didn't know so all that stuff and then again to finish with another trivial thing again turns out the first captain hook was daphne de maurier the, the author's uh, dad uh, one of the scariest uh, uh, Peter, um, uh, of captain hooks apparently and so children fainted and had to be carried out for the first performance of Peter Pan so it's a nice note to end on that particular bit isn't it indeed are there a few myths you're trying to dispel you mentioned the donkeys there are often things that have caught popular imagination or that will feature in nativity plays that aren't actually there in the yeah well my, my daughter this year is uh, she's a stick man in her nativity play um, I suppose there were sticks there but I'm feeling they're just doing stick man by Julia Donaldson instead <laughs> so yeah Christmas nativities do you know famously get the love actually octopus whatever it might be mm. um but I suppose I hadn't fully appreciated that, yes, we have, you know, you make a laugh about all these different odd things nativity plays can get. But even what we might think of as a true nativity, shepherds, fair enough, in the biblical account, three kings, well, kings, you know, three wise men, magi, but actually not three, doesn't say that. It says there are magi with three gifts. Could be there were two of them, one person carrying two gifts. Could be there are a thousand of them, just only the front three other gifts. Who knows, you know. So... And very quickly you realise that if you start worrying too much about those things, actually you've taken your eye off the ball, which is, you know, who's in the manger, really. So I suppose one of the things I realised writing it was, yes, we've added probably too many Christmas layers, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, all the different Christmas songs and the fact you can't escape Christmas culture and it's... Uh, you cannot possibly fit in if your annual tradition is to go ice skating and to go to a Christmas panto and a western musical you can't fit it all in let alone a Christmas service at church 
but to realize that actually those layers came in they come in at the, at the nativity really that if you start to worry about well who was there is it the shepherds three shepherds two shepherds three wise men angel donkey innkeeper well i don't say there's an well, it says there's an innkeeper but was it an inn because it could mean there's no space in the room rather than just no room at the inn was it an inn a tavern who knows and you start to worry about those things too much again you're taking your eye off the fact this is just an origin story of jesus and all the good stuff's to come really so it's just christmas is just starting it off often at this time of year sometimes there are newspaper articles or television documentaries with a historian or academic from somewhere claiming mm. that you know what the bible says about christmas or mm. other aspects of Christianity aren't true in the way we think they are. Do you have any views on that, especially as someone who studied theology? Obviously, you, I come from a Christian perspective as well, so obviously I'm going to favour that. And But then equally, an academic who is an atheist, is they're not looking for stuff in their, uh, in their academia to, fa- to favour the Christian perspective. So I think that we all come from it for our own points of view. And I think all you can do is you realise that all of the history texts from back then, so I mentioned King Herod's wife being called Doris, that's obviously not in the Bible, Mm. but because he's a king, we do have historical documents about who this King Herod was. And historians do say that he was a real nasty piece of work. Even by, you know, you can you watch Game of Thrones and things, and, oh, all these ancient kings, they're all nasty pieces of work. Well, he was particularly nasty. He had a lot of his family killed at parties and things like that. He killed people for fun. He actually ordered the deaths of um, well-liked noble people uh, nearby when he died so that people would actually cry, if not for him, but for them. He was so worried he wouldn't be mourned properly. So he was... He was he was off his rocker really you know he was he he was extreme by any standards and we get that from historical accounts of the time so it's to what degree you look at the bible and go well the texts obviously the bible is is built on because before it was you know amassed as, as a bible there are writings letters texts accounts to what degree do you count these as as historical documents as well and i think they have their place in history obviously they are people reporting on things that would happen some of them are traditions that came from different places but once you've got a Matthew's account and a Luke's account, obviously it's not written in Mark and John's gospel, but it's in two of the gospels, written slightly differently. And yeah, they're written after Jesus, uh, after the crucifixion, the resurrection. But yeah, the church start start to go, well, what, what was behind this person? What were the origins of this person who, who we know, you know, died at Easter? So then they have to listen to what people said. And this, these are the stories that we that we have. So I think that's that's the best we can, we can go on, really. Probably this time of year, what gets you in the kind of festive mood or have you had enough of Christmas often by the time December comes around? Sad thing is my, my seven-year-old said to me yesterday, um, uh, he said, you know what, Daddy, I think, I think you've ruined Christmas. I said, oh no, have I really? He said, I think I've had enough of Christmas now. And so I'm, you were no, talking about you know, it in May. Or... Well, I've been going on about it for the last two. I've tried to limit myself, you know, but my wife's sick of it. You know, I come back from a, a day out writing somewhere at the library or at coffee shops. I said, you know what I found out? Today? It turns out that Charles Dickens' first eight Christmases as a kid were white Christmases. And that's why I wrote about it. And she's going, oh, great. This would have been fascinating if it were the first of the last thousand bits of trivia you've come up with for, on the Christmas history. So... Yeah, I, I, and there is a sense that you know we may have peaked, um, but the good thing about Christmas is, of course, it, you cannot help but get a bit wrapped up in it. Uh, I like a Christmas movie, a bit of that. That will be that will be out to come soon. Then you, but that's all sort of the build up to the Christmas season. Then I think it's the carol services. I do loads of comedy shows with carols. We do mm-hmm. comedians and carols shows. So they and they always get me in the mood as well, and they're always great fun. Always in churches. People turn out and bring their neighbours, and that's just a lovely atmosphere. And then we go to our home church for either the carol services or, or the Chris Dingle. We used to do the midnight mass, and then we had children, so we've sort of moved to the Chris Dingle service. Mm. So, yeah, you find the bit of 
you know, a pre-Christmas uh, church or spirituality, whatever it might be, uh, that, that fits you. And, you know, as I said, you can't, it's very difficult to do all of it. It's very, I don't know if anyone who, who does Christingle and Midnight Mass and Christmas Day services and everything, apart from the vicar probably, where they, they get quite <laughs> exhausted. But, you know, you, you pick your Christmas traditions and I just, you know, hope and pray people pick, pick the, the good ones that are, you know, family-based and, uh, and, and, you know, Christian in origin perhaps and all these sorts of things, you know. But yeah, it's whatever Christmas does for you, I suppose, really, that gets you in that spirit. I've heard you say that Christmas is a busy time for comedians because of office parties, but those mm. also quite can be quite tough. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, well, this is why I've done this. These comedians and carol shows to just get nicer audiences. <laughs> Turns out the church. Who knew the churches would have nicer audiences Less than, than office parties? <laughs> uh, yeah, they, I normally end up with about one or two office party gigs each year, and oh yeah, I mean, I still have, I still have, I can feel scars on my brain from uh, the uh, the Jonglers Bristol. It's 90 plumbers, and wow. nothing against plumbers, but only one of them wanted to come to comedy, and he booked it, and the other 89 preferred a disco, and they're just going just gonna to chat throughout, aren't they? This is it, you know. Uh, and that's the worst thing. You can deal with hecklers. Yeah. It's just when they're just chatting, when they're waiting for the, uh, when they're waiting for the disco afterwards. And how, generally, how are church gigs different to non-church gigs? Is it that there's less heckling and it's nicer, or can it actually be challenging in a different way because they expect something else? Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, the first few comedy shows I did for churches I didn't quite know how to play it I think and I thought oh do I just because it's, it's a high for just little things like it's the high ceiling right. compared with a comedy, good comedy club has a low ceiling and it's yeah. acoustically a good comedy club has a low ceiling because you get the rolling laugh effect you can hear each other laugh you're more likely to laugh churches of course built with the complete opposite in mind all the sound is meant to go heavenwards which it does but then you can't hear each other laughing so you're less likely to join in so things like that just you've got to play them a little bit differently I suppose and, and also accept that most people may not have been to comedy before. So, and often a lot of people, they often get a little bit turned off by live comedy. They think, oh, I'm not sure it's, I, I've not been to it before because I think it could be a bit either rude or they're going to pick on me or, or whatever it might be. So you've always got to take them by the hand a bit and go, it's going to be okay, don't worry. You know, most church gigs still, even when they're full, the front row's empty and the people who would be in it are standing at the back. And you think, just... You can sit here. It's, I'm not going to have a go. I promise you. You know. So, but it's just reassuring them of these facts. You know, right. then you'll be all right. Do you, do you ever change the material? Is, can it be a bit more risque in a non-church setting? Or, well, you can. I mean, you play the room certainly, um, but that's not necessarily about changing, making the material bawdier or, or you know, more um, church appropriate. So, well, yeah, you obviously want to be appropriate in a church, but often that's not just about, you know, do you you know make it bawdier in any way but it's just things like it's just being nice i find as well i used to, there were jokes that i and i you know i used to do which weren't rude particularly but they were i don't know having a go at a celebrity or something and then you know i just looked at it one day and just thought actually who am i really helping by doing this you know you're perpetuating a stereotype or you're having it's a cheap target <clears throat> often you know and it's you don't need it i think and that spirit of that sort of streak of meanness, I think, you can often see on the comedy circuit. But I am finding nowadays, I think since Brexit and Trump and things like these, I have seen more and more non-Christian comedians actually going, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm changing my set. People don't respond to that. You know, in the, maybe in the more laddish 90s or something, right. people wanted that. And nowadays, you've got families coming out. You've got people coming out to comedy because they've seen it on Live at the Apollo and they're not there because they want some 18-rated um, swear fest. Yeah. They're there for just a good time and also to take their mind off the troubles of the world. And you don't want to add to that by making it worse for them. You know. 
I guess some of the really big comedians like Peter Kay or Michael McIntyre mm. actually aren't that mean, are they? Or no. Sweary. Yes. Very yeah. Popular. So that shows there's a appetite. For yeah, them. certainly. And but equally, you find some. Uh, I know. You know. I've heard some people say this about about McIntyre actually, and and a few other comedians that you go and see them live, and sometimes the material slightly different right. from on TV. Not too much, but it, just a little bit is enough to make you to go, oh, that that feels a little bit. Uh, it's just not what I've come for, you know. And which is fine. You're with, within your right to think that, and they're within their right to go. It's fine. You think that I'm going to still keep doing it, but in the most part, yeah, I think those people like that are are sort of helping to reframe and restructure the comedy circuit a little bit, and go. Actually, this people just want it a bit nicer. Really, you know, you don't have to be. And there are there is still certainly a place. There are still people who will go out their way to seek the nastier stuff, and good luck to them. They can find them elsewhere, perhaps. But mm. it's always nice if you're centre ground. Uh, wherever it is, in this case on the comedy circuit, is is just a bit more pleasant. Mm. So you study theology as an undergraduate. Mm. Um, did you ever consider ordination or, or going into the church? Um, not not massively. I, 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 I think I probably had that thought and then thought, no. Uh, so it's not something I've not... I have questioned it, you know. But I just don't think that's probably me. But yeah, I, I did theology at Nottingham because I was interested in it, really, as a as an A-level religious studies student, you know, I enjoyed it. I thought I could see myself doing this for three years and still battling these questions and, and you know, coming from a Christian perspective. But it was a non-vocational course, so probably a third, maybe a quarter of the course were Christian. And then lots of agnostic, atheist, a couple of Muslim students. And, yeah, we were all sort of, we had, we had our New Testament uh, teacher sat us down at the start of it and said, look, by the end of this course, my hope is that you will, any Christians amongst you will be uh, no longer thinking that this is true. Mm. And I thought, well, I survived that three years, so if I can survive that, I'll probably survive most uh, most challenges. But yeah, it was a good good, good course to do. And, and one of, my best mate on that course is now a vicar, in fact, of, of the nearest church to the university campus. So literally, he, he got his degree, walked out, went, I'll have that one. And okay. he's uh, stayed ever since. You know, So that, that sort of feels like the other way I could have gone. Yeah. But then as a comedian, I often think, you know, comedian, teacher, minister, you're all just, you're one person standing at the front yes. of a room facing the other way from everybody else and uh, trying to get a message across without much heckling. So, you know. What do you think of comedy and sermons, clergy trying to be funny? Do you think, is that something to be cautious about or is it important, an important part of communicating? Uh, you know, I've had every opinion on that. I've been asked it before and sometimes I've said, oh, I approach with caution. And others think, oh, well, you do, you've got to laugh, haven't you? Yeah. I think, yeah, you've got to laugh, but I, I think it's kn knowing how best you uh, do humour is often helpful. So I know some people, often the thing is, someone would start with a joke and then crowbar into that something uh, often really crowbarred. A bit you know, laboured. A little bit laboured. Right. But then I've seen some people brilliantly as well actually start with the, with the meat of it almost, mm. start with the serious stuff. And then uh, I, saw, I saw Stephen Gorkroger a few years ago, you know, Baptist... Uh, preacher, really good, good speaker, and I've seen him a few times do this thing where about twenty minutes in, he'll realise that you know twenty minutes in, it's not nothing against him, but twenty minutes in your, your attention drifts or you've been a little and you're shuffling your seat, and he goes right, okay, here's a little funny story, and he does a little funny story for a minute, goes good, got your attention again, right now back to this, you know, <laughs> and it, you know almost using it to restart things a little bit, but certainly using humour as analogy, as story, as anecdote, I think you know that's often really good, yeah, definitely. What about using comedy to evangelise? Is that does that ever work? Well, I mean, it depends what you call evangelise, I suppose. Because mm. I, I mean, most of my gigs now, lately have been in churches, and it's purely 
Uh, it's not been, I've been out of my way to not do the comedy circuit as such, but it's supply and demand. There are a thousand comedians on the comedy circuit yeah. and there are only about four or five of us who right. end up, who are probably appropriate for church gigs, you know. And are those events where people are bringing people who don't Yeah, so often that is, you know, alpha launches or, right. or you know, a sort of pr- very much sort of light touch evangelism things. And they're great fun for a start. And generally people just want a nice show out and, you know, a nice night out. But also you can then start to talk about a few of those issues and questions. I do a little Q&A afterwards so people can ask those questions if they want to. And so it's almost, is, is, is pre-evangelism a word? That should be, a, if it's not, let's yeah. go with it. I like yeah. pre-evangelism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit of that, I suppose. But I'm not, I'm not there with a the big, big gospel message yeah. as such, but I am there to go, right, if you want a little, a little flavour of it this week, then come back next time and there'll be something, uh, someone who knows their stuff. You know? right. So I think in that sense it can be nice because if they're laughing, they're listening, which is always nice. Yeah. And also it is a, a really, it's an easy sell to, you know, friends and neighbours and say, come along to this, see what we do. Yeah. And often that's half the battle is getting them through the doors. Because I know some people go, it just looks a bit forbidding. I've not been in a church for 30 years. But but so often as well, just knowing, like our church I go to in, in Guildford, we've got guys who bring their kids to the Saturday morning dad's club or to the weekday toddler club or something. They, that's all they come to. And yet I've overheard them chat to someone and go, oh, St. John's, oh yeah, that's, that's my church. Mm. And they think of that as their church because they just, they come to the toddler group. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, if that's all we get, that's, that's something, you know, that's great. And so actually to get people just through the doors and go, oh, this, this stuff happens here. And obviously we want them to, uh, to become a Christian and, and, and know Jesus in that way. But a great start with that is to just go, look, we are here, we are doing these things. Mm. Come on in, whether it's a comedy night, whether it's a, the toddler club. And just be a bit less forbidding and a bit more, hey, that we're here. You know, it's a good centre of the community. Do you find much humour in the Bible? I mean, I heard someone once say that Jesus' parables, a lot of them actually have a punchline that work mm. as jokes. Do you agree with that? Yeah, well, I think it's a similar thing, you know, about what we were talking about preachers and humour. Is I, I think if people are laughing, they're listening. And certainly you look at things like the Sermon on the Mount, planks in eyes and things like that. Those are humorous images. And I think, you know, I don't want to sort of, you, you've, got, you've got to play the mount, you know, but it's, it's as a public speaker, uh, and one of the great public speakers of all time, you, just, you still look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's the best sermon there is, you know, there is no, no better than that, as far as I'm concerned. And it goes to show how good it is, because even people who don't believe in Jesus, or believe, or in, 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 who aren't Christians, still use phrases and words and terminology from that it's because it's just so punchy and brilliant you know build your house on rock not on sand and you know all these sorts of things there's so much in there but to get that across yeah you know your public speaker you're using humor analogy image that sort of stuff and I always think yes we're not going to laugh at it out loud as such but then you look at a Shakespeare comedy that's only 500 years old you don't laugh out loud at those this is 2000 years old so yeah, humour changes. Even look at humour from 50 years ago and we don't laugh in the same way. So I think, yeah, humour tastes change, but certainly I think there is definitely a use of humour in that, yeah. Do you think humour can be used to shine a light on human nature and your hypocrisy, absurdity of humans in some ways that could then hmm. um, provoke deeper theological questions? Yeah, I think when done well, you know, and I, I, it's one of those things I always think so easy to say and so tricky to do, you know, I'd love to... To go from here now and sit in a coffee shop and go, yes, right, this is going to be the the satire that will bring down the Trump presidency or whatever. <laughs> Not that I'm politically saying that, you know, that's yeah. a good thing to do. But, uh, but yeah, you know, you, you, we all like to think that we are that comedian who could go, yeah, I could, I can say the unsayable. I'm gonna, you know, I can pre, I can take this to authority. Um, 
knock them down off their pedestals, all that sort of thing. In practice, it's a lot easier to do jokes and just jokey jokes, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. But yeah, I think really comedy is about human nature. And often it's at a more basic level, just showing us that we're all human. And whenever you, you know, you think of the, when we're doing sitcoms and things, you think of the visual stuff being the stuff that really sticks. You know, you write ages about these lines, but really it's the visual stuff that people right. want. And that's, you know, you think of the classic sitcom moments and it's Del Boy falling through the mm-hmm. bar. It's um, Dawn French or indeed Miranda falling you know, Dawn French and Vicar Dibbley falls in a puddle, Miranda falls in an open grave. Yeah. A lot of falling, it seems. We, this sticks in the head, you know. And really, all of those, we're laughing because we look, we just think they're by the, but for the grace of God go I, you know. Yeah. And it, I think it just makes all sitcoms, I think, work best when they are showing that actually the Baldrick is, you know, yes, he's an idiot, but actually he's maybe got more answers than the, the haughty person up, up on their pedestal, you know. So it's just kind of a leveler, I think, mm. really. And, and a way of saying, look, we've all been there. You know, that's, you know, Martin Freeman in the office looking to camera. He's just him going, am I the only one who goes through this? And we're at home going, no, like, that's me as well. I don't worry, there are idiots everywhere, you know. Yeah. So you feel a solidarity when you yeah. see people. I think so, yeah. I think, I think the best ones are the ones that, yeah, invite you in. I think that's why Miranda works, because she's look, connecting with you at home because yeah. she's looking down the camera. You know, without that in it, it would be a very different sitcom. It would be yes. removed, you know. And the way that sitcoms were in the... You know, 70s, 80s, 90s, and indeed, some many today. It's more performed like a play, yeah. but actually, I think the, the those still need those characters mm. that you can absolutely connect with and go, "Oh, that's me. Yep, I do that." Or you know, I've suffered that. Yeah. Just finally, who are your all-time comedy influences? Um, I I like just I like jokey jokes. You know, so uh, good Christian chums like Tim Vine, Milton Jones. Are, I think always I always uh, hoot at them. Um, and in terms of influences, I suppose their equivalents. You know, from from before, you know, your Tommy Coopers, your Ronnie Barkers, that sort of thing. Uh, Bob Monkhouse, you know, I used to love mm-hmm. that stuff. Even though he was a game show host, really, when I was growing up. But then you look into it, and go, oh yeah, this guy, he knows his jokes. You know, so I've still got his, uh, you know, his old joke books that he used to sell back home on the shelf, and yeah, all that sort of stuff, really. But then also the storytellers as well. You know, once you start to look into it, and go, my dad used to love Dave Allen. You know, and I yeah, sort yeah. of first saw that, and go, oh yeah, he he just he did something very different. You know. Uh, so, I don't know. We're we're. I used to love like you know your Blackadder and things like that. But that's so much good stuff out there. You know, and we're just trying. To, the trouble is, you're trying to write something new and you're comparing it all to that. So it's best to try and forget about them and do your own thing, I suppose. Yeah. Just briefly, have you got something you're working on next? Oh, what what next? I'm just pitching loads of sitcoms. Right. Uh, I've got a couple of a uh, couple of children's books out in February next year. So this Christmas book out now, and then children's books in. February, so that should be fun, and they're, they're biblical children's books, mm-hmm. uh, so Noah's Car Park Ark and that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. it's a different way of looking at those things, and um, yeah, still just doing my you know podcast and Twitter and blogging and all the sort of stuff that you seem to do nowadays to uh, wear a lot of different hats. You know, so mm-hmm. but lots of gigging. I'm doing some stuff with the Bible Society, hopefully uh, it, around Easter time, maybe doing some shows with them, and uh, might be doing a little tour of a sort of a a tour through the Bible, but musical. So I'm sort of slowly piecing that together now, and that may be ready next year, or it may not. Let's, let's see. But it's only a one-man musical, so it's all right. It's, but don't, if it's not ready, there's no cast to cancel, so that's easy. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good fun. Cheers. Thanks for your time. Thank that's you. Some, yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website 
churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.